Okay. We have a terrible thing to do today. I'll tell you why. You guys all know Jesus, right? The whole Bible's about him. And every once in a while, Jesus starts to talk about things and subject matter that are just not kosher. And he disturbs our lives and he messes with us a little bit. Now, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in history. Nobody's ever given a better sermon, right? And he wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. And he's gotten to a place in this text, in Matthew chapter 5, that's going to make us all uncomfortable. But I promise it's not going to make any of you as uncomfortable as it's going to make me. <laughs> chapter 5 from verse 31. Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you another one of my little stories. You know how I like to tell my stories. I remember I was 22 years old. And my dad was a pastor. You know, even for years, we lived at Christ for the Nation Seminary outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. And so, you know, I grew up in churches and stuff like that. But I did get to an age where all of my thoughts about religion kind of went back to the historic church. You know, the church of the creeds and confessions, what had always been believed by the church. That's kind of where my focus was. So I didn't really know where I sat in the whole disposition of things. I had been raised a Baptist, but then my dad became a Pentecostal, and I kind of went back to the Baptist church. So I got this set in the mail. I saved up for it because I was working, and I got this set of about 34 books called the Church Fathers series. Have any of you seen this? 34 books, all the anti-Nicene fathers, the Nicene fathers, the post-Nicene fathers. Why Nicene? Because, I don't know, that's what they call them. But... So I'm reading these guys, and I'm reading Augustine and all of these, and one of the most influential was a guy named John Chrysostom, and Chrysostom means golden voice, and I was like, wow, that's impressive. The whole Eastern Orthodox Church, he's their most important guy, and I was kind of going through this conflict about certain things having to do with salvation, and I got to the place where he was supposed to talk about Romans chapter 9. Now, how many of you know about the conflict in Romans chapter 9? Very important. It'll really freak you out, all right? So I'm reading along. I'm going through chapter 8. I'm like, I want to hear what this dude, one of these major dudes, because Steely Dan taught me that any major dude will tell you. I wanted to know what he had to say about Romans chapter 9, because it's a very conflicted passage. Christians still fight about it today all the time, right? And I get to chapter 9, and he skips to chapter 10. And I remember sitting there thinking, he's got to talk about it somewhere else. So I looked through all of his stuff, and he never talks about it. And there's another place in Ephesians where it talks about that whole thing, chapter 2 of Ephesians. So I look at what he's saying about Ephesians, skips to chapter 3. And it made me think to myself, wow, this is what wise dudes do. They just skip this stuff, right? And then I started to think, no, you know, he's kind of censoring Jesus here, you know. Maybe the reason we're still reading him after 1,800 years is that he was smart enough to know you skip all the difficult stuff. <laughs> but Augustine didn't skip it, and Aquinas didn't skip it, and Luther and Calvin didn't skip it. And a lot of the big guys, they were like, no, we got to bite the bullet and we got to get in here, right? One of the reasons that this is such a conflicting passage is that Jesus chooses specifically on purpose to talk about something we don't want to talk about. 
And, you know, so here's the thing about exegetical preaching. As you guys know, this is a church that does an exegetical method for preaching. What that means in shorthand is we read through the Bible. We start at one place and we go through it till we get to the next place, right? Well, what if we just start taking pieces out of it we don't like? Then we are not subjecting ourselves to the Bible. We're subjecting the Bible to ourselves. Here's another thing about that. As a preacher, you're kind of your whole job is to tell people what God says. Your opinion matters for nah, right? So you get to a place that's uncomfortable to you in the text, and the temptation to kind of get, eh, is very strong. But what happens when people pass by texts like that is their churches grow phenomenally. That's a true story. And what happens... <laughs> But what happens when you deal with the text and you hear with the text and you as the Christian grapple with the text is you grow spiritually wherever you come down. So you don't have to buy anything I'm presenting to you today if you think it's me. But if you think it's Jesus, you should grapple with that, right? So before we actually get into this text, I don't know if you guys got notes or not, but we go all the way back to Genesis 2.18. Now, this is all the way back in Genesis. There was the beginning of the world, and God created the entire world in six days. And the height of his creation was he created Adam and Eve, right? So he creates Adam after his own image and likeness, which means Adam has the moral ability to think in terms of good and evil. Hedgehogs can't do that. It doesn't matter how good you train them. It's like teaching a three-year-old multiplication tables. They just look at you. They don't care. But God made Adam after his own image and likeness so he could think God's thoughts after him. And they walked together in the cool of the day, and God and Adam hung out like friends. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, was he alone? He was hanging out with God. But God called him alone because there's one kind of communion that we have with God, which is possibly the highest, most beautiful communion of all. But there's this other communion that we have with each other that's necessary for our well-being in this world. And notice, this is before the fall. This is before sin. This isn't a problem he's addressing. It's, so it has to be part of his design for the human being, made in his own image and likeness. You remember, God is not still not one person. God is three persons in an eternal, unchanging relationship of community and love. So when God made Adam, there was one way in which Adam was never alone. There was another way in which he was alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see which, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. If you ever wondered where that happens in the Bible, that's where it happens, right at the beginning. And the reason we have to go back there is Jesus is going to refer to it when he starts to talk about this subject. 
So marriage is not accidental, and it's not secondary, and it's not a consequence of the fall. It's more necessary because of the fall, but it is not a cause of the fall, and it's not a consequence of the fall. And that man and woman, one man and one woman are the context for marriage, is absolutely essential to it. Notice the man and the woman are made a little differently, but they're corresponding. They're made to complete each other. Adam was not actually made complete in and of himself because before the fall, even with a good relationship with God, he needed a woman. And the woman needed the man. This is a wonderful thing, right? It's a wonderful thing that it's actually part of God's design that we be together in this way. That we find a correspondent person that helps us, who's not the same as us. They're reciprocal, not identical. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't have all the same gifts, aptitudes, and abilities. They have distinguishable ones that when they come together, complete them as God designed them to be. And that's amazing. That's wonderful, right? So as we go on, we go to Exodus chapter 20. Now, you guys know Exodus. We talked about it a little last week where we talk about the giving of the Ten Commandments by Charlton Heston in the great Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments. But before that happened, way back, when God actually gave exactly the same commandments. What are the odds? So let's go over them together. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. We'll do it together. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is under the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now in that, we are getting to the place where we're getting pretty close to Jesus talking now. But one of the things we have to remember is that the Sermon on the Mount is basically an exegetical sermon on the Ten Commandments. And as we saw, he goes over just about every one of them, one at a time. Last week, he went over murder. 
and he reduced it to anger in the heart, which is basically an expression of pride and vanity. I know you guys think it's always justifiable, but Jesus doesn't seem to think so. And today, you know, if you see the subheadings, like even in this uh, ESV Bible, they have subheadings up there, and it says lust, and the other one says anger. But remember, those are not part of the Bible. Those are things they stuck in your Bible to help you find stuff, right? The words of Jesus are the Bible. The little subheadings they stick in there, that's the publisher, who could be right or could be wrong, right? So here's something about this. There are other commentaries on this to help us to understand what's going on. One of them is from Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 18, and it's talking about the king, the kings that God will give Israel, that is the highest station. He's the head of the civil authority, but he's also the overseer in many ways of the church and the protector of the church. And he's giving a few rules for anybody who will be a king of Israel that also applies to the people under them. It says in verse 16 of chapter 17, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order that they may acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy in a book of this law approved by the Levitical priest. So he has to sit down and write a whole copy of the law, and he can't have a lot of horses, he can't have a lot of gold and silver, and he can't have a lot of wives. That's the law for the king. You guys already know almost every one of them broke this law. But you might not have put together that everybody who multiplied wives in the Bible, it ended up with bad mojo, right? <laughs> almost every story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, David, almost everybody... As soon as they got that second wife, everything went to pot. And like the whole kingdom started to break down. I'm not kidding. All the stories are tied into this thing people have for more and more and more. And a lot of them got rich. And a lot of them got powerful. And a lot of them had standing armies. And a lot of them multiplied horses. Multiplying horses, let me tell you what that is. That stands for the accumulation of power, and especially military power, to be able to protect what you've got, right? But... Hey, the Bible's endorsement is of minimal government. It's kind of like the Americans, the early Americans, they were powerfully influenced by this. They said the government shouldn't be huge and have all the power and money. That should stay in the hands of the people to protect them from who? The king. Where's the king going to get all that gold and silver? From y'all. Right? So high taxes, the inflation of the size of government is something that's talked about in the Bible, and the Bible says stay away from that. You don't get to have all the people's money. You don't get to have all the power over them. You don't get all the horses. You don't get all the armies, right? Who's going to protect them if they have trouble with an outside country? The Lord, right? And especially, you can't have more than one wife. It's written right into the law. Now, you guys know who the most famous guy with a bunch of wives is, right? In the whole Bible, who is it? Solomon. Solomon. <laughs> and whose son is Solomon? David. David. By who? Bathsheba, the whole thing was trouble from the start. But wait a minute, Solomon is held out in the Bible as this awesome guy. As a matter of fact, when Solomon was about to become king, he has a dream, and the Lord comes to him in the dream, and the Lord says, ask of me anything, and for the sake of your father David, I will give it to you. And Solomon thinks about it, he said, give me the wisdom to lead your people well. And the Lord says, because you did not ask for money, I'm going to give you money. Because you did not ask for power, I'm going to give you power, and I'll give you the wisdom that you asked for. 
right? And so the Bible says he was the wisest man that ever lived. And he built great things. And his gardens alone, the other kings would come from other nations just to see his gardens. And he wrote many of the Proverbs with the great wisdom that God gave him. But besides that, he also wrote Ecclesiastes and apparently the Song of Solomon. I don't know. So he wrote all these things. He had all this great wisdom. And then he started collecting wives like they were wristwatches, right? It says in the text he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Now, we do know that it's kind of different at that time. A lot of those marriages were not normal marriages. We're like, you know, you... You had a bedroom together. It's hard to stick 600, you know, 300 wives in the bathroom while you're brushing your teeth in the morning. A lot of those were political alliances with other nations, and you married one of their daughters so that now you were family. But God said to not make treaties with those nations, right? And he also said, and he told them, when you do acquire that one wife, she has to be one of your own people and of your own faith. You guys all know the unequally yoked verse, right? That's a famous one. You don't marry outside the faith. Because it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you shall not be unequally yoked because what does the world have to do with Christ? And what does Yahweh have to do with Bilal? And you'll just be apples and oranges all through this thing. So you can't marry somebody who's not a Christian, right? Well, that law is from all the way back here in the Old Testament. That's not new potatoes. That's old potatoes, right? So here is kind of what happened. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here's how it ended up. And this isn't in the main story of Solomon. That's why a lot of people skip it. It's in a much later footnote in the strange place of 1 Kings chapter 11. And it says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, which is kind of his primary wife. He loved Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Sidonians and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Remember, the main thing wasn't a distinction of race or ethnicity. The main thing was a distinction of faith. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Remember, wisest man that ever lived, wiser than you or me, so don't be arrogant about it. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father has done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did this for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is not just some guy in the Bible. This is Solomon, right? And the multiplying of wives and stuff is what caused this problem because you're supposed to have one relationship with one person. This keeps you sane. This keeps you happy. This makes you strong. It makes your emotions strong. It keeps you from being divided. You remember what happened to Jacob? Jacob really wanted to marry this, this woman, you know, Rachel. So he tried to marry her, but he got tricked and he married her sister. 
So he worked seven more years. Then he married Rachel. Then he married their servants. And he had all the 12 tribes of Israel from all these people. And they all fought each other. And then a bunch of people died, right? Did not go good. We have to be careful with this. We need to understand how God has designed us and how he made us. He made us for one reciprocal relationship. But now we go on. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, in the Sermon on the Mount, after anger says this, after murder, he goes straight to adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We already read that verse, so we know exactly what he's talking about. But I say to you, in other words, if you have misunderstood this, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, if you thought you're okay as long as you don't touch, you're not, right? With all of these laws, Jesus kind of rips away the falsity of thinking you're okay when your heart is doing things. And he says, no, this law goes all the way down to your heart. If you think you're righteous according to the law, you're not. Because there's not a single person in this room that has not had a thought in their heart, right? All of us. You know, if you think he's not trying to make you feel guilty, you just don't understand Jewish people. He definitely wants you to feel guilty because only if you feel the weight of the guilt can you be reconciled to God and move past it to peace, right? If you will never allow yourself to be guilty of anything, you'll never be okay with God because he wants real relationship. He doesn't want a fakey relationship where we just pretend everything's fine. He doesn't want us to skip these kind of ideas either because they do something to us in our heart and mind. So he goes all the way with it in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you tear it out and throw it away. He's being figurative. All right. Now, he could be literal. But really, to really understand the verse, he is being figurative because your right eye can't really cause you to sin. It's your heart. Right. But he's saying if that's what it costs to have a right relationship with God and your eye was causing you to sin, rip it out. He goes on. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's only a hand. You're only going to be so long in this life. We only live that long, right? The next life is what you've got to be ready for. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Remember, he did that. It was said, right? And there is a place where that was said. The law of Moses actually says to do this in this way. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is heavy. But remember, he's correcting an inaccurate understanding of the text. He's not giving us a new law. He's not giving us a different law. Here's one of the places that we know that from. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, after... Exodus 20, and after Deuteronomy 17, he says this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So that's the verse that Jesus is quoting the first time, right? But there are other things to be said. In case you misunderstood and thought any indecency might mean any possible thing, Jesus is going to correct that as we move on. There's another verse in Malachi chapter 2. I'll just read it to you. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, who covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You know, we live in a culture that worships love. It's all in here. I love. And it means nothing because 15 minutes later you love something else, right? For those of you that have been married a while, right? You know real love. Because all the butterflies and chemical reactions and stuff will only get you so far in a marriage, right? After a few years, you've got to get to some real love where you have determined you're going to love this person come hell or high water, right? Because it's not always going to be fun and it's not always going to be a piece of cake, right? It's not. And really, you might not get butterflies perpetually. You might be a non-butterfly person even. I don't know. But what Jesus is saying is commitment is love, not just your passionate feelings and stuff. I don't let my kids watch a lot of the Disney shows because they just tend to give a view of love that's so quick, you know, because the girl's in love one episode, next one she's in love with somebody else, next one she's in love. How do they keep up? I, don't even, I can't even keep up, right? I don't even know who they're in love with from show to show. So our understanding of love, the one Jesus is talking about, is deeper, richer, fuller. It's willing to suffer. Why do we make these crazy vows? Richer, poorer, sickness, health. Because they're coming. They're coming down the pipe at you. You know? We have to be ready to be different from the world in regard to our love. If you ever tell me, you guys know I've been doing marriage counseling for people for like 20 years. I've sat with hundreds of couples. The worst thing anybody can ever tell me is, I just don't feel. I always tell them, choose to feel. Feeling is not something that carries you away. Feeling is something that you decide. You decide to love the person you are supposed to love. And you decide not to love anybody you ain't supposed to love, right? That's the way it goes. You're not carried away by some irrepressible force. You're you. You're completely you. Now, for the understanding of this, Jesus doesn't get to it till Matthew 19, but they bring the same issue to him. Now, I'm going to tell you the history, history behind this. There was an entire argument among the rabbis, among the great rabbis, even some of them that trained the apostle Paul himself, and they made this argument. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Did you get that? Can I say it again? Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? And one of the rabbis said, even if she burns his breakfast, he can divorce her. Jeez. Hope his wife's a good cook, right? And one said, a person cannot divorce his wife, really, for any reason. And Jesus gives his answer, which is not either one of those. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees, you know they're always trying to trick him, right? The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for <coughs> any cause? For any cause doesn't mean <coughs> any cause. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? We read that, right? And said, therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We read that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From what beginning? Before the fall. Now, some commentators have interpreted this by saying, well, yeah, but that was before Jesus came. Now we don't have hardness of heart. Christians have a soft heart. And I'm like, what Christians are you talking about? I haven't met them yet. Right? Jesus is not, it would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to say no one can divorce for any reason, right? And he doesn't because he's Jesus. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, he's answering that question at the time. And the Apostle Paul and others go on to answer this in greater detail because it's not only adultery. It's not. The Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians goes into deeper detail on this and the understanding of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Well, then how is it good not to? Well, there's a good in that, but it's not the highest good. Because before the fall, even, it was necessary for their well-being. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Notice this is reciprocal. A lot of the stuff that developed in Western civilization about women not having rights and not being able to buy property and not being able to be the queen and stuff like that, you don't find any of that junk in the Bible, frankly. You find the Proverbs 31 woman who rose up early in the morning and she went and bought a field and she started a business and her husband got to hang out at the city gate going, I got an awesome wife, I can hang out at the city gate. <laughs> These are things that crept in from Western civilization from other cultures that were not necessarily brought to us by the Bible. The Bible has very few restrictions on a woman, what a woman can do and what a woman will do, right? It also has a clear formatting and setting for the man and the wife and their mutual relationship, right? But it does not say some of the things that we think that have come from Christian culture, which really come from English and Roman culture. Those are different. The idea that a woman is somehow intrinsically inferior to a man, you're not going to find a verse on that. So where would you get it? Not from God, right? And he goes on to say, a man doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the Apostle Paul actually had a great gift of self-control. He actually says, I did not take a believing wife along with me on my missionary journey like the other apostles, like Peter and the others who did. So if Peter was the first pope, he was still a married guy. Just throw that out there for you. It says it in the Bible, right? Verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So one of the things he says is basically until you're 60, you're, you're probably not going to be able to be qualified as a widow. He talks about why and all this stuff, but he says if you're under 60, you should probably remarry, right? Now, I'm not in the business of telling anybody what to do with their lives and things like that. But here's the thing. 
The thing about being a widow is he assumes that if you're a Christian and you're a widow, you're going to really dedicate the rest of your life to the service of God. But if you're too young for that, you should be open to whatever God happens to be doing in your life, right? To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, then if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And then he's going to say something else. Now, what I want you to notice is he's saying something different than Jesus because he's talking about something different than Jesus. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The offspring of even one believer is holy to God, and he takes them as a member of his church. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Notice what's going on here. You don't know necessarily what God's going to do, right? So if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, the Christian is allowed to let them leave. But if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to stay with you, you should not divorce them. That's the Apostle Paul's judgment here, right? In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That means not bound. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? So it's an interesting thing the Apostle Paul does. He puts in the clause that we call abandonment, right? Abandonment means they leave. What are you supposed to do? Now, here's the thing. What if they said they were a Christian? Well, if they were a Christian, they wouldn't have left. Anybody can say they're a Christian. You can go into McDonald's and say you're a hamburger. You start abandoning spouses and stuff like that just because you don't believe, right? They told you not to. I know this is hard teaching, but hey, it's Apostle Paul. I want you to blame him and send your letters directly to God. Now, notice 1 Timothy chapter 5, 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. And is he as bad as an unbeliever? That bell is to make you pay attention to this passage. Is he as bad as an unbeliever if he doesn't take care of his own family and offspring? The text says he's worse than an unbeliever. Worse. So we get into all of these other reasons, right? Now, you know that adultery is plainly and clearly grounds for divorce. In other words, if somebody comes to this church and they are married and they say, my husband has committed adultery, I want to divorce them, we cannot stop them. We're bound. We have a limit of authority. Might we talk to them and try to get them to work things out? Well, maybe, but we can't stop them because we do not have the authority to stop someone who has been, uh, had a crime committed against them within the jurisdiction of Scripture from doing something that is their right. Now, might we encourage them to forgive the person? Yeah, but you can forgive somebody that stole your car. They're still going to do the time, Right? What the Bible says about these things is pretty clear. So there are other things. What about a man that's mercilessly beating his wife and trying to kill her? Might that be justifiable grounds? Well, it's worse than adultery. Murder's worse than adultery. I know a lot of you, I've heard a lot of you say, well, all sins are the same in God's eyes. No, they're not. No, they're not. You steal a pack of gum or you kill somebody with a crowbar, it's worse. Right? People do what they do. Some things are worse than others. There's an idea in the Bible that goes through all of the Old Testament 
uh, what they call axiology of scripture. And that is that the worse offense includes, the lesser offense includes the worse offense. Uh, no, excuse me. The worse offense includes the lesser offense. And the Ten Commandments are written in order. They really are. So what about somebody who you know these things are going to rip your heart out when you hear about them, but you hear about these things all the time. They went to a doctor. They got a surgery, right? So they started taking Valium and stuff for the pain, and eventually they go to OxyContin. Then the doctor cuts them off, but they can't stop taking them, right? So they start buying them on the street, and eventually they're drinking or they're doing heroin and this and that. And then they stop going to work, and they stop providing for their families, and they start feeding drugs and stealing things. And after they burned out every relationship that they can, they just disappear. When we look at things like if anyone does not provide for his family, and especially for members of his own household, they're worse than an unbeliever. They've denied the faith. You have to think about that within the context of what you think is justifiable in regard to divorce, right? There's the things that are plain, what are called the black letter law and are obvious, and there's the things that are more subtle. What about pornography? What about a habit of pornography that cannot be cured by the church or any encouragement? Is it adultery? Well, not plainly, but what is it exactly, right? It's other people's wives and other women besides their spouse. How bad does that have to get before the church will take it as justifiable grounds for divorce? Well, I don't really know, but there's probably a line. We can all talk about that and think about that, but really, any kid these days can pick up their phone and in five seconds have some pornography on it. Everything has changed. Everything has changed. And so the church is dealing with these problems the best that it can, and the conflicts that can come into a marriage are more complicated than ever before. So we have to take it seriously but, you know, Jesus isn't going to let anybody off the hook on these things. But the idea that there's only one identifiable ground is just not what Jesus or the Bible seems to be teaching about that. Anybody have a Westminster Confession on them? I had one up here, but it's gone. Nobody has a Westminster Confession? How reformed all your, are y'all? Thanks, Mom. Now, there's a chapter in here on what we think about this subject. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. And remember, this was written 400 years ago. It's still good. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage gives justification for the innocent party to dissolve the contract. In case of adultery after marriage, it's lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Although the corruption of man be such and is apt to study arguments to unduly put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate is cause sufficient for the dissolving of the bond of marriage, wherein public and orderly course of proceedings is to be observed and the persons concerned are not left to their own will or their own discretion in their own case. You understand that? That's this church, this denomination, and really Western civilization's judgment on these things. It's a little bit broad. It's a little bit vague because it's supposed to be. But all of these things are to keep us safe and to hold us together within these bonds of marriage, hopefully until one of us goes to be with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, we know that these are hard things.